Welcome to this month's BJA Education Podcast. My name's Anthony Winhebden, and I'm one of the trainee and podcast editors for BJA Education. Today I'm talking to Dr. Bill Fawcett about his essential notes piece from the December 2019 issue, Succimethonium or Rocuronium for Rapid Sequence Induction of Anesthesia. Dr. Fawcett is a consultant in anesthesia and pain medicine at the Royal Surrey County Hospital NHS Trust and St. Luke's Cancer Centre in Guildford. He is also an honorary senior lecturer at University College London, chair of the Education Committee and the Featherstone Professor of Anesthesia at the Association of Anaesthetists. So welcome, Dr. Fawcett, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for asking me to be part of this podcast. So first of all, would you mind telling us a bit about the article and what made you write it? Succimethonium versus rocuronium seems to be a hot topic lately. The fundamental thing is why um, the article was written in the first place, um, which is uh, sort of almost an absurdity, really, because it's um, the most fundamental practical skill that anaesthetists have. Um, and yet, interestingly, we don't have a black and white answer as to how we should undertake this. So, so I think yeah. that's what really prompted me. Um, and, you know, it's kind of awkward for trainees, but it's also awkward for consultants when trainees say, um, so how do you do a rapid sequence induction? And I go, well, I don't really know the right answer. And I, and I think that's a pretty unusual position to be in after having done, what, 33 years of anaesthetics. I don't know the answer to one of the most fundamental questions. And is that something that you think has changed over the last few decades? Uh, I think it was clear cut um, until the the kind of advent and the uh, ready availability of rocuronium and shunkamidex. And yeah. I think we had this conversation five years ago when shunkamidex first became widely available with beyoming and knowing, but we wouldn't have had this conversation, for instance, 10 years ago. I guess the fact is that now there are so many versions of a rapid sequence induction that no two inductions are the same, uh, which must make it difficult to evaluate which techniques work well and which ones don't. Yeah, I think that that's wise. I think that the other issue is it depends in which environment you're doing it. So, for instance, in theatres, there's a great familiarity with rocuronium and shungamidex. Um, I suspect, for instance, in an isolated obstetric theatre uh, or an intensive care or in A&E, um, that's the situation doesn't exist. I think the other issue is that uh, for people who have um, a slightly remote um, maternity unit, uh, they may be administering succimethonium, which is a drug they could be pretty unfamiliar with uh, in a highly stressful situation. Um, so I think that then you know, perhaps needs to be some clarity uh, amongst the profession, really, as to um, what we think is the ideal technique. And that comes across when reading your article. You highlight that performing a rapid sequence induction in each of these scenarios, uh, obstetric theatres, emergency theatres and critical care, 
can be quite a different problem with different risks. In terms of critical care or emergency department intubations, would you refer to this as a rapid sequence induction, or is this term more relevant for theatres? Yes, I mean, I guess that there's a a kind of blurred area of what you might call classic uh, rapid sequence induction and maybe a modified rapid sequence induction. I expect hospitals up and down the country have slightly varying um, terminology as to uh, what they mean. I mean, I guess for me... Uh, the kind of two gold standards of rapid sequence induction would be something like uh, an emergency laparotomy with gastric outflow obstruction. I don't think there'd be any doubt that that would be kind of top of the angst list uh, for wanting everything to be uh, super smooth. And I think intubating obstetric patients is probably the other group of patients in whom um, if you like, the margin for error is considered relatively small. Um, you know, if you contrast that with having to re-intubate a patient in ICU who's, uh, I don't know, accidentally been extubated um, or a head injury, uh, I think that people perhaps would feel that the risk of aspiration is probably a lot less than, um, for instance, an obstetric patient. Yeah, so actually the balance of risk and benefit is considering interrupted ventilation and delivery of oxygen versus the potentially small risk of aspiration. And when you're talking about a classical RSI, what exactly do you mean by that? When I've spoken to people at work, almost everyone has their own idea of what an RSI is. So, uh, so I uh, guess I would encapsulate the thoughts that you've already had. So um, really swift um, induction of anaesthesia followed by uh, as as quick and as smooth as possible tracheal intubation and the cuff um, on the tube blown up now again you have to consider that for some patients um this is relatively easy and you have to look at um as you rightly alluded to the risk and benefit uh of failing to do that so for instance uh you know one of the things that we teach trainees that if you can't see the vocal cords with the cricoid pressure on you would release the cricoid pressure and often that will aid visualisation of the cords, even though, uh, on the other hand, you're perhaps increasing the risk um, of pulmonary aspiration. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Each individual case has to be looked at on its own risks and benefits. And in your article, you also touch on a few controversial issues, for example, the use of cricoid pressure. Um, which seems to have come around without much evidence supporting it, and yet it's part of our guidelines. People feel obliged to use it, and I think people use it not quite believing that it works. I've heard people saying things like, we'll do a bit of gentle cricoid pressure, and you can always take it off if there's a problem. And I think that the other issue is that that there's a paper came out in JAMA Surgery at the start of this year, basically saying that 
there was no particular evidence or benefit for um, the application of cricoid pressure. So uh, I think perhaps of all the things that we talk about, um, I suspect that um, cricoid pressure probably has the least science to back it up. You know, are people doing the the kind of proscribed uh, 44 newtons of, of pressure or force? Um, and of course, we all know that it's done in a, in a fairly variable and haphazard way. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly seen some interesting cricoid pressure applications myself. And it's not something that's universally done. Uh, I believe many countries around the world don't have cricoid pressure as part of their guidelines. Yeah. And I think that the positioning of the patient. So, for instance, I think a lot of people these days uh, have the patient slightly head up. Um, when I was taught cricoid pressure back in the 1980s, you had the patient head down uh, on the understanding that uh, if anything from the stomach uh, were to uh, come up, it would have come out of the patient's mouth and on the floor um, and not go down the patient's lungs. So I think the whole, you know, that bit of it is kind of mired in a kind of sham science, isn't it? Uh, that we kind of think that we probably know what the best thing is, but trying to prove that is probably extremely hard. You've mentioned a couple of the additional things that people do to reduce the risk of aspiration, aside from the choice of drugs and avoiding ventilation. For example, head up or head down positioning, uh, cricoid pressure. I've heard people talking about use of nasogastric tubes and new ideas like gastric ultrasound. Um, have you any thoughts on using these techniques to reduce the risk of aspiration? Yeah. I mean, I think the big problem that no, no one can catch around is that, you know, significant pulmonary aspiration is actually quite rare, thankfully. And therefore, uh, to actually prove one technique over the other uh, would require, you know, absolutely um, massive data collection. I think my feeling is, I think, gastric ultrasound... Um, which is a, a quite a, an operator-dependent skill, but if you have someone who's expert at it, um, I think that is a, would be a significant step forward. Um, there's the age-old argument of, of putting down a nasogastric tube and aspirating, and then the question is, do you then take out the NG tube? Um, or, um, uh, because obviously with Pastin, it may affect the efficacy of any cricoid, or do you leave the tube down in the confident knowledge that the stomach's empty? So, uh, I think the whole area is, is kind of steeped, um, in dogma rather than science. And so, can I ask, I'm quite curious, what is your, RSI technique of choice. One of the things that actually made me do this is that we have a, a, a um, an isolated obstetric unit, and there uh, there's 
diapentone and succmethotonium is drawn up and good to go. And so I think that's a kind of common technique there. I think in theatres, um, I probably haven't given succmethotonium for um, three years, four years. So, and that was kind of the paradox, particularly if you're expecting a trainee um, who may not have given the combination of thiopentone and succinthonium, uh, having to do uh, one of their first obstetric intubations unsupervised. Uh, you know, it's bad enough having to do that in the first place, but then throw into the mix two relatively unfamiliar drugs uh that would be a difficult standpoint to defend yourself from if there were to be any mishap yeah i think my experience is fairly similar in that the only place i've ever used thiopentone and succimethonium for a rapid sequence induction has been in obstetric units in small hospitals with no one else around and they were again pre-drawn up at the start of the shift so when I read your article, one thing which was new to me was the choice of induction agent influencing intubating conditions. Would you talk a bit about that? Yes, I mean, I think that um, there isn't a huge amount of evidence to support things one way or the other, but it did look like that the combination that many old-fashioned people like me have used, of thiopentone and succinthonium, um appears to be better than, for instance, uh, propofol and succinthonium. Um, I'm not convinced that that's really the area that one should be focusing on. Um, I think what's much more important is getting all the other bits right. That is to say that, you know, your pre-oxygenation is good that your ability to put the tube down swiftly is good. Um, and I think perhaps an area that we haven't really touched on is the fact that uh, the succinthonium may actually start wearing off uh, too quick, quickly. And I think uh, if one was to pick a selling point with rocuronium, you can have your muscle relaxation uh, until you don't want it anymore. Uh, whereas with succinthonium, you're pretty much in the lap of gods as to when it starts to wear off. And it may, you know, inconveniently wear off just when you get that first glimpse of the vocal cords um, and you've just put your bougie down and it starts wearing off. So there's, it's a kind of multifaceted um, issue. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Is it a good thing that a drug wears off randomly, even if it's usually quickly? Uh, if there's a lack of control at the point where you're having difficulties, do you really want it wearing off? And I guess in a lot of cases, no. You'd rather the patient was fully relaxed, allowing you to attempt other techniques. Yeah, of course, not least the fact that, you know, there's no doubt that if you end up having to do bag and pass ventilation, I think there's a pretty good agreement that that is much more efficacious in a patient who is paralyzed. 
Yeah. And so you don't want them to suddenly start waking up, maybe have some Luinga spasm and start coughing and that sort of thing. Um, I think one has to say, just in order to give this some perspective, that Suxmethenium has been around a long time. Um, and for the vast majority of rapid sequence inductions is absolutely fine. The issue is trying to spot the ones in advance where you may think that it's probably not the drug of choice. So following on from that, in which cases would you rather not use succimethonium? Or if you were supervising a trainee, when would you insist upon using rocuronium with Sigamidex readily available for reversal? Um, I mean, I've pretty much, um, certainly apart from my obstetric practice, where we just, I think the whole infrastructure in my hospital would probably struggle a bit uh, to move over. Um, certainly for our emergency theatres, um, I've pretty much universally gone over to Hocuronium and Gamadex. And I think that, you know, part of that is a, an issue with confidence in as much as um, I've used Gamadex for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Um, we do quite a lot of deep neuromuscular blockade, and I know that it is really um reliably reversed um and i think having that confidence that you have paralyzed someone and then you can easily and quickly reverse it uh is um is a big push uh you know the the issue as i say with succinthonium is that it may wear off in time you know it may may uh, if you like, will wear off at exactly the right time. It may wear off a bit too soon, or it may uh, not wear off in time, and then you're struggling with um, someone who you may be struggling to oxygenate. And related to that, when you're performing a rapid sequence induction, do patients reliably wake up and start breathing if you're struggling to intubate? I suspect it depends on on lots of issues. It depends on the, the dose of induction agent, what opioid, if any, you've used. I mean, there's not many benefits to getting older, but one of them is that your failed intubation rate probably goes down. And so I can't put my hand on my heart and say, well, of the last... 10 failed intubations I've had. I'm glad I'm used uh, combination A or B. Um, so I think a part of it's guided by your inherent feeling for the situation. Um, and I use, apart from obstetrics, I always use alfentanil, which has a, a very quick onset and offset. And if you use propofol as well, that'll have a relatively quick offset. So I kind of feel, um, from a safety perspective, I've given drugs that will can either be reversed or naturally will have a relatively quick offset. Um, but I can't put my hand on my heart and say that that is, you know, definitely the case. And coming back to the choice of muscle relaxants, 
other things that people are concerned about are the side effects. Uh, and you go into a good bit of detail about this in the article. What are the main concerning side effects of these two drugs and how do they influence which drug people might choose? Yes, I mean, I think that the, I think for me, the biggest two issues with succinium would revolve around the kind of potential for hyperkalemia. And we're not just talking about the sort of classic burns patients, you know, I think a, a septic patient or a, you know, someone who's extremely unwell and um, for whatever cause and has been for some time may have a significant rise in potassium. I think the other um, issue, which I think people are still struggling with, you know, what's the relative risk of anaphylaxis and allergic reaction? So, you know, although succinium has a higher overall risk of allergy uh the generally i think people feel that the magnitude of the effect of uh what ronium allergy can be much more catastrophic um and so you're then saying so would you rather use a drug that gives more allergic reactions which tend to be less serious or ones that have a, a low instance but but tend to be more serious and then the final thing to add in to the mix which i alluded to was that there have been some case reports of people reversing rocuronium anaphylaxis um with gamadex but i think the the feeling seems to be that that is probably an unreliable way of doing things uh, plus the fact that you may have an um, an allergy to gamadex as well, uh, but it really would be a bad day at work if you had a uronium anaphylaxis followed swiftly by a gamadex one. <laughs> so um, I think that that certainly, as I become much more familiar with the concept, I'm much happier with rocuronium and gamadex. Um, but, you know, one has to say uh, succinium has actually been pretty effective, you know, since the 1950s. So it's difficult to put your hand on your heart and say that an inexpensive uh, um, um, drug that generally works extremely well to just wholesale, say, with kind of get rid of that and try something else so it's such a cheap and useful drug at a certain point in time it may be difficult to let go of even when new drugs come along which seem to have many benefits yeah exactly so that you know one has to ask what problem are we trying to solve here um you know i think both used correctly for the overwhelming proportion of rapid sequence inductions will do a fine job uh, the issue is um, how do you, uh, you know, identify the patients at risk in which you may want to do something a bit different. And I guess one other thing which I wanted to ask you about was um, are there other situations where you may use succinethonium aside from in a rapid sequence induction? Um, and in the case where a rapid sequence induction is indicated, and both drugs may be appropriate. 
would the fact that rocuronium is going to last a lot longer influence which drug you might give, especially given the cost of Sigamidex? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think in answer to your first bit, um, you know, things like providing anesthesia for ECT, um, I think people would struggle um, to do that with rocuronium and scamadex for something like a laparoscopic appendix. If you're working with a quick surgeon, you may end up always having to use um, scamadex. Um, I have to say, I've done two laparoscopic appendices today, and they both took so long that it wasn't an issue. Um, but I can see that that's potentially an issue. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm just wondering if I've ever had to give Sigamidex for a laparoscopic appendectomy. Um, so I think that the balance uh, is certainly shifted, or certainly makes you think much more carefully if it's a if it's an extremely sh- sh- short operation. Um, uh, whereas if you have a long operation, uh, you know, you're extremely relaxed about giving a large dose of rock. Uh, you haven't got to wait for the sucks to wear off and you can kind of feel that it, it's all sorted. Yeah. And do you have any other areas on this topic that you wanted to talk about or anything? I mean, I think that the only other issue is that sort of classic teaching certainly when i was a trainee and i don't know if it's the same for yourself is that giving a second dose of succinethonium is kind of like a, a red flag isn't it you know if you can't do it on the first dose um that then you should give up and and um you know either wake the patient up or or whatever um and i think with the types of uh devices that we have to aid airway management that's not always the case so you might start off with your your standard direct laryngoscopy you might then move on to video laryngoscopy or any other you know any other of a multitude uh, of options that are open to you and a Again, I don't think you would have that um, ability on a single dose of succinethonium. You would be, uh, you'd probably try your direct laryngoscopy. You might have time to start the video laryngoscopy, and then you'd be having to abandon things. So, so I think that rocuronium gives you the ability to make use of the advances in airway management over the last 10 years that succinethonium probably doesn't. So actually rocuronium by lasting a bit longer is opening doors in airway management in that rapid sequence scenario. Absolutely plus coupled with that it's uh, it's easier to bag and mask you're going to be doing that much more efficaciously in a paralyzed patient. Thank you very much. So in summary, amongst other things, we've discussed the performance of rapid sequence induction of anaesthesia and its place in different settings throughout the hospital, commonly used muscle relaxants, rocuronium and succinethonium, and their place in performing an RSI, and factors that may lead anaesthetists to use one over the other, 
for example, how fast your surgeon is. And in particular, we've talked about the difficulties in managing a difficult airway whilst a muscle relaxant starts to wear off. Thank you very much for taking time to make this podcast with us, Dr. Fawcett, and we hope to hear from you soon. Okay then, Anthony. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BJA Education Podcast.